Welcome to the Valley Brook Community Church Podcast, and thank you for joining us online today. You're about to hear a message from our current series, Connect, which dives into different relationships. To watch any of our previous messages or find all listening platforms, we encourage you to visit www.valleybrook.cc forward slash on demand. Enjoy. Good morning again to everybody here in the house, as well as everybody online. Uh, Happy Father's Day to the dads. We're glad that everyone is here today. Special welcome to guests. We hope you all join us again next week, as well as afterwards for some fellowship in our cafe. So in 1987, the band U2 released their album entitled The Joshua Tree. And the song, I Still Haven't Found What I'm Looking For, was also on that album. And that song became their their second number one hit of the album. And it was a number one single on the U.S. Billboard charts. And it remains today one of the band's most well-known songs. U2's uh, U2's, uh, lead singer and songwriter Bono has referred to it as a gospel song with a restless spirit. Now, to understand the band's restless spirit and where it came from, you you have to know the, the depth of their religious roots. U2's four musicians met when they were in, uh, growing up in Ireland in the 1970s during that turbulent time, that conflict between the two religious groups. It was known as the Troubles. And three of the members of U2, Bono, the guitarist, The Edge, and drummer Larry Mullen Jr., were members of a Christian fellowship called Shalom. And for The Edge and Bono, They said their faith seemed at odds with rock and roll. They they felt that they should be doing something more meaningful with their lives than playing music. And, And in an interview, Bono said that just as the band was on the brink of major success, they went to their manager to say they wanted to quit. Now, he was a no-nonsense type of guy named Paul McGinnis, and and Bono continued. He said, we said to Paul, hey, we're done. Uh, We actually want to do something useful with our life, and maybe rock and roll isn't it. And, And Bono recounts, he said, Paul was like, oh, so God tells you to do this. And we said, well, not exactly, but we're deeply convicted here. And then Paul retorted, Well, would you mind speaking to God about the commitments I've made on your behalf to another tour? And so they stayed. About their songs, Bono went on to say, you know, our songs are a prayer of a kind. And and, and he told Rolling Stone magazine, you know, the song I still haven't found what I'm looking for is is an anthem. It's an anthem of doubt more than faith. And, and Joshua Rothman, a writer for The New Yorker, writes as he hears something else. He goes, it's a song that celebrates wanting. You know, in interviews, Bono is very open about his faith in Christ. And you can tell his faith is echoed in that memorable refrain of the song that implies he's still searching for more depth and, and more understanding in his life and, and with God. And And listen, with no intended disrespect to Bono and the band, Jesus has the answer to those who still haven't found what they're looking for. In fact, Jesus makes it clear in the Gospel of Matthew that if we are his followers and if we pursue God, when we pursue him, we will find what we're looking for. In fact, 
This morning, I'm going to read to you a passage where Jesus tells us just that. If you want to follow along in your Bible, the verses will also be online, but it's from Matthew chapter 7, verses 7 and 11, 7 through 11. Jesus says, ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and the door will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and the one who seeks finds, and the one who knocks, to the one who knocks the door will be open. Which of you, if your son asks for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a snake? If you, then though you are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give good gifts to those who ask him? You know, it's interesting in studying this passage, some scholarly commentators say that ask, seek, and uh, look at ask, seek, and knock, and, and they interpret it in different ways as they uh, look at it. One group says, well, you, you know, it's, it's purely about prayer, while another group of scholars says, well, ask, seek, and knock are different ways in which Jesus wants us to pursue God. Now, truthfully, I don't think it's an either or, but more of a both and interpretation, because for followers of Jesus Christ, we're supposed to pursue God by all means possible, and that requires that we talk to God, that we implore Him, that we seek Him out, that we continue to pursue Him. And so this morning, I, I want to talk about that pursuit, and I, and I want to break it down. So we'll look at that, the ask, seek, and knock. And, and the first part of this pursuit is ask, as Jesus said. Specifically, remember He says, ask and it will be given to you. And in the very next verse, he says, for everyone who asks, receives. So asking God is clearly talking about prayer, and particularly when you realize what else Jesus talked about in this, this three-chapter passage, which we commonly call the Sermon on the Mount. And so in, in the beginning, just a chapter before, in Matthew chapter 6, Jesus talked specifically about prayer. And this is what he said. When you pray, do not be like the hypocrites, for they love to pray standing in the synagogues and on the street corners to be seen by others. Truly, I tell you, they have received their reward in full. But when you pray, go into your room, close the door and pray to your father who is unseen. Then your father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. And when you pray... Do not keep on babbling like pagans, for they think they will be heard because of their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask Him. So Jesus is clearly equating prayer with asking God for what's on our heart, even if God already knows the desires of your heart and what you're going to ask for. And to go even further than this, He, he gives the disciples an example of how to pray. Uh, we commonly know that, depending on the tradition that you grew up as the Lord's Prayer. Maybe you, use, you grew up calling it the Our Father. And it's a model of how we're supposed to talk to God and ask Him for help. Let me read to you the way it's written in the Gospel of Matthew. Jesus said, this is how you should pray. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we for have forgiven our debtors. 
and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. So Jesus said, ask God for what you need, especially ask God for forgiveness of your sins, ask him for help in withstanding temptation, and ask God to protect you from the evil one, from Satan, the devil. So pursuing God requires that we ask him for help. So ask. Now, Sometimes when people hear Jesus say things like, ask for this, they get excited because when they hear Jesus say, ask and it will be given to you for everyone who asks, receives, well, they start thinking about money and fame and power. And then there are other verses that we hear people quote, like in John's gospel where Jesus says, until now you have asked for nothing in my name, ask and you will receive and your joy will be complete. Or another verse where he says, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. You know, when when some people read those verses, they, they feel like they've found the spiritual formula for prosperity and for happiness. But that's not what Jesus is teaching. Now, we we call that kind of philosophy the prosperity gospel, and it's a false gospel. It's not the good news about Jesus. Jesus did not come to be served, he told us, but rather to serve the world, and he calls his followers to do the same. So that's, that's not about seeking worldly prosperity. So Jesus didn't come for us to prosper according to the world's definition of prospering. He came to help us prosper in effect in a relationship with God and in being part of the kingdom of God. So we would be wise to pay attention then to how Jesus teaches us to ask God for help. In the Lord's Prayer, he shows us how to frame our request that they be made to God with the knowledge that we want his que- our request to be made within the vision that Jesus gives us, that they be part of bringing forth the kingdom of God and that they be prayers and requests that would be answered according to the will of God. And in John's gospel, Jesus said, ask in his name. So that means that when we ask in Jesus' name, what we're asking for has to align then with kingdom values, with what God wants, with what God's will is. And if it doesn't align with that, we shouldn't expect it to be answered the way that we envisioned God to answer our request. You see, our pursuit of God is not for worldly success. It's for spiritually connecting, and yes, prospering in our relationship with God. That might become a little more clear as we continue with the next part of this command in the pursuit of God, where Jesus says, seek. After telling his followers to ask, then he says, seek, and you will find. And then he concludes that thought with, the one who seeks finds. New Testament professor John Nolan points out that the word seek repeats a similar word earlier in the Gospel of Matthew in this Sermon on the Mount where Jesus says that we're supposed to seek and he provides a focus 
and the boundaries for our seeking. So in, in Matthew chapter 6, verse 32 and 33, uh, we have what I call the concluding verses of Jesus teaching to his disciples to trust God to provide for the basic needs of life. He says, don't worry like people who don't believe in God because God knows what you need. And then he says, but seek first the kingdom and his righteousness and all these things will be given to you as well. You see, when we seek God's kingdom first and God's righteousness, we will find the most important thing in life, and that's God and his kingdom, and then God will take care of us as we prioritize his will and his kingdom coming. Now, as I was thinking through this, you know, it sort of reminds me of uh, that example of the struggle that people have here between uh, uh, God's will and our will, and, and we see that lived out in the lives of two sisters, Mary and Martha. Uh, it li- it's lived out before us in Scripture in the Gospel of Luke when Jesus and his party of 12 disciples show up unannounced at the home of Mary and Martha. Uh, Mary sat at the feet of Jesus, and she listened to him teach, but, but Martha hurried around and began to make food for Jesus and this party of 12. And eventually, Martha became exasperated with her sister's lack of help, and so she went straight to Jesus and she complained. But in response, Jesus said this, there's only one thing worth being concerned about, and your sister Mary has discovered it, and it will not be taken away from her. Mary went seeking, and she found the one who brought God's kingdom to earth and to us. Now let's return again to what will be given to those who seek first God and his kingdom and his righteousness. Jesus is clear. They will not be given money and fame and power. Jesus says when we seek the kingdom of God and his righteousness, all the things he was teaching about right before will be given to us. What are those things he's referring to? Not riches, but the basics of daily living, food and clothing. When we put God in his kingdom first and align our lives with his righteousness, he will provide for us. He will help us order our lives according to his will. So seeking him first is what we need to do, and that's pursuing God. Now let's look at that final imperative in Jesus' teaching, and it's the word knock. So after telling his followers to ask and to seek, he tells them, knock, and the door will be open to you. And then he concludes that in the next verse saying, and to the one who knocks, the door will be open. New Testament professor again, John Nolan, acknowledges that the word knock uh, lacks a definite link, but he suggests that that one not need to knock, uh, one may need to knock to go through the narrow gate that we read about a little bit further in chapter 7 of Matthew. He says, the challenge is to find one's way forward in life with a clear focus on the kingdom of God and a deep trust that the one As one looks to him, God will open the way ahead. So let's go look at that verse a few verses later. Matthew 7, 13 through 14. Enter through the narrow gate. 
For wide is the gate and broad is the road that leads to destruction, and many enter through it. But small is the gate and narrow the road that leads to life, and only a few find it. Jesus makes it clear that the gate to the road that leads to life is not wide, it's not the easy way, it's narrow, it's going to be not according to the ways of the world, because it's through Jesus. In the Gospel of Luke, uh, Jesus expounds on this a little bit more, and this is what we read in there. He says, make every effort to enter through the narrow door, because many, I tell you, will try to enter and will not be able to. Once the owner of the house gets up and closes the door, he will stand outside knocking and pleading, sir, open the door for us, but he will answer, I don't know you or where you come from. To enter the door or the gate, one would have to knock to gain entrance. Now, I think about our own human experience. If someone we know knocks on our door, we will let them in, but if we don't know the person knocking, if they're a stranger, we probably won't let them in. But here's the good news for us in the pursuit of God. Jesus knows every one of his followers, and we know how to enter the gate. Remember Jesus' own words in the Gospel of John, he said, I am the gate. Whoever enters through me will be saved. So we knock on the gate, and Jesus, who is the gate, knows us and opens the way for us. Again, Dr. Nolan writes, what binds these images of ask, seek, and knock together is that they are all images of venturing out in pursuit of something, and in the context, they become a set of mutually interpreting images of venturing with God. And then he goes on to say, uh, he points out that in this instance, that with God, asking, seeking, and knocking all work. So with that in mind, and Luke, he includes in the gospel a parable about Jesus emphasizing our need to be persistent in asking and seeking and knocking. So before Jesus says, ask, seek, and knock, he tells this story in the gospel of Luke. He says, suppose someone Suppose you have a friend and you go to him at midnight and say, friend, lend me three loaves of bread. A friend of mine on a journey has come to me and I have no food to offer him. And suppose the one inside answers, don't bother me. The door is already locked and my children and I are in bed. I can't get up and give you anything. I tell you, even though he will not get up and give you the bread because of friendship, yet because of your shameless audacity, he will surely get up and give you as much as you need. Now, I recognize that this illustration doesn't make a, a, a great deal of sense in the 21st century, so we need to understand it as part of the first century culture. So, in the first century, uh, you know, where uh, there weren't uh, schedules, there weren't uh, uh, GPS maps that told you how long it would take to get somewhere, when people traveled, who knows when they would show up? And so, a traveler seeking hospitality, which was something everyone was expected to give, if they appeared at your house late at night, a person would be willing to grant it. And so in that first century culture, this illustration 
made so much sense. But, but whether you're in the first century or the 21st century, the big picture message of this story is clear. Be persistent in pursuing God. Now, after Jesus says, ask, seek, and knock, he makes a point, a point with a promise. So let's talk about the promise. So let's go to verses 9 through 11 in chapter 7 of Matthew, where Jesus explains. He says, which of you, if your son asked for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asked for a fish, will give him a snake? If you then, though you are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give good gifts to those who ask him? Another New Testament professor, Michael J. Wilkins, writes about this passage. He says, Jesus closes with an argument called in Jewish rabbinic tradition, a qual rehomer. He says, if, quoting the verse, if you then, though you are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give good gifts to those who ask him? So he explains, if the lesser is true, in other words, the activity of earthly fathers who are tainted by the evil of this fallen world, if that's true, how much more the greater will be true the response of the heavenly father. Earthly fathers have an innate sense of doing right by their children and are not primarily mean or hurtful to them, even though they are still evil by the way of the entrance of sin into, the, into all of humanity. So how much more will the heavenly father, who is inherently perfectly holy and good, how much will he always give to his children what they need when they ask him? In Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, which is where the teaching is found, Jesus refers to God over and over in the Sermon on the Mount using personal pronouns that make it very clear that for the father, follower of Jesus, God is his or her father. Fifteen times prior to this verse, in the three chapters where the Sermon on the Mount is found, Jesus refers to God either as our Father or your Father. But, but here in these verses, he uses an illustration that everyone can connect with. The argument works by flushing out the implications of the conviction about the fatherhood of God, which is assumed to already exist for the disciples and it gains its persuasive power by appealing to what will be instinctively recognized as a fundamental aspect of being a father that we would understand at the human level. If God is father, his fathering cannot fall short of the commitment of human fathering. So God is our heavenly father. He's the perfect parent, and Jesus teaches us his followers, time and time again, that we need to persistently pursue God, and we need to trust that our loving, eternal parent will always be our provider. So pursue him by asking him for what you need, by seeking out his help, looking through that kingdom view, and by knocking on the door of God to ask for his will to be done in your life. We are his children, and he, want, he will not turn us away. 
But as we pursue God, we have to remember that God knows what is best for us, so we have to be willing to accept what God provides. And maybe this story will help illustrate what I mean. A terrible storm came into a town, and local officials sent out an emergency warning that the riverbanks would soon overflow and, and flood the nearby homes, and they ordered everybody in the town to evacuate immediately. And there was a faithful Christian man who heard the warning and decided to stay, saying to himself, I'm going to trust God, and if I'm in danger, then God will send a divine miracle to save me. Not long afterwards, neighbors came by his house, and they said to him, hey, we're leaving, and there's room for you in our car. Please come with us. But the man declined. He said, I have faith that God's going to save me. As the man stood on his porch, watching the water rise up the stairs, another man in a canoe paddled by and called to him. He said, hurry, come and get into my canoe. The waters are rising quickly. Again, the man said, no thanks. Listen, I believe God's going to save me. As the floodwaters continued to rise, water began to pour into his living room, and so the man retreated to the second floor of his house. Police in a boat came by, and they saw him in the window, and they said, listen, we've come to rescue you, they shouted, but the man refused, waving them off, saying, use your time to save someone else. I believe that God is going to save me. The floodwaters continued to rise higher and higher. The man had to climb onto the roof of his house, a helicopter spotted him and dropped a rope ladder. A rescuer came down the ladder and pleaded with the man, grab my hand and I'll pull you up. But the man still refused, crossing his arms tightly. No, thank you. God will save me. As you can imagine, shortly after the house broke up, the floodwaters swept the house and the man away and he drowned. When he arrived in heaven, the man stood before God and said, I put all my faith in you. Why didn't you come and save me? And God said, son, I sent you a warning. I sent you a car. I sent you a canoe. I sent you a motorboat. I sent you a helicopter. What were you looking for? You see, sometimes we have an idea of how God should answer our prayers. And we have to trust that God knows what we need. And we have to accept that answer whether we fully understand it at the time. You see, God tells us to pursue him. He says, ask, seek, knock, and he'll provide for what you need. Now, in conclusion, let me say this. I'm well aware that a message like this may leave some of you with some unanswered questions about prayer. So let me share a few concluding thoughts. First, let me remind you that God is a good father, and like a good human parent, God gives his children what they need, not everything they want. Also, God will answer every prayer, either with a yes or a no or a not yet. And while we struggle to understand the answer no or the answer not yet, we have to remember that God has a plan that we aren't privileged to know in its entirety. And so we have to trust him. And when we question why a good father would allow natural disasters and tragedies and evil to enter the world and shatter our peace, let us remember that it was humanity's sin that altered the perfection of creation. And one final thought. 
When our loved ones are taken from us, naturally we grieve and we may even ask why, but it's helpful for us to remember that this earth is not our home, that we belong with God in eternity. And while we cannot fathom the goodness and the greatness of that and how earth pales in comparison to it, we have to trust God. So I want to close with a time of prayer for us. And and as I do that, you know, one of the things that I, I think is important for us to recognize is that when we pray according to God's will and for his kingdom, we need to recognize that we're all part of that. So I'm going to invite the worship team to come on up. But but as I pray, I want you to think about the fact that that we're part of God's kingdom plan and he wants to use us not only to have a relationship with him, but to help others have a relationship with him. And so we need to ask God to use us in that. I also recognize that if you're not a follower of Jesus, this may just seem uh, new to you. So I'm going to give you the opportunity at the beginning of this prayer time to, to tell him that you actually believe in him now and you want to follow him and become a Christian. So if you would all bow your heads and let's pray. Father, as we come into this and seek you with our persistence, I recognize that there could be someone here, man or woman, who's never put their faith in you and and now they want to. So if that's you, I invite you to pray these phrases back to God right where you are, just silently. Here's the first phrase. Dear God, I do believe in Jesus. I believe that Jesus died to pay for my sins. I believe that he rose again from the dead. And today, I want to declare that I trust him as my Lord and my Savior. And I want to follow him the rest of my life. So guide me, Lord. And we say amen to that prayer. But now I'm going to pray for all of us. Father, I pray for every person in this room that we would pursue you, that we would ask, that we would seek that we would knock, and Lord, that we would trust that your answers are great, and Lord, that we would understand that you ask us to pray that your will would be done on earth as it is in heaven, and that means that we're part of seeing your will done, and that we would be a part of making your kingdom come, which it means introducing more and more people to what it means to follow you. So I, I pray for each one of us. Lord, that that we would be part of a revival that takes place that sees many more sons and daughters come to faith in you and to expand your kingdom for your glory and for your honor. So Lord, I pray that you would work in each one of us, that you would show each one of us a, a sense of your presence in our lives, that you would guide us and direct us. And as we seek and as we ask and as we knock, that you would answer and we would recognize that answer. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to our podcast. It is our sincere hope that it has blessed you. For more information, visit our website at www.valleybrook.cc.